The federal government has acknowledged the U.S. needs to overhaul its effort to develop better measures to counter pandemic flus and bioterrorist threats. So with nearly $2 billion committed, what is Uncle Sam prepared to do about it? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, and joining me today is Dr. George Korch. Dr. Korch is the Senior Science Advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services. He's also a visiting professor in the Department of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Korch retired from the U.S. Army Medical Department in 2008, where he had served in a number of roles, including the commander of the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases and was the director of the Defense Department's Medical, Chemical, and Biological Defense Research Program. He serves or has served on several committees as the Institute of Medicine's Forum on Microbial Threats, He's also on the state of Maryland's Life Sciences Advisory Board and with the Standards Development Committee for the American Type Cell Culture. We're so happy to have him join us from his offices in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Dr. George Korch, welcome to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you very much, Bruce, for having me here today. Well, it seems like news people like me over the years that cover vaccine production, write a lot about Baxter and so forth, and that you get a pandemic threat, the government goes out and they try to make a vaccine and you get all sorts of bioterrorist attacks and the whole preparedness issue has been very heightened in the news. But there's an acknowledgement recently on the federal government's part that more work needs to be done to overhaul these efforts. And if you could tell us about this effort, which is going to get about $1.9 billion in funding to change some things. Tell us a little bit about this. Sure. In terms of overhauling, it's not so much of an overhaul as it is, I would say, an augmentation to what has been put in place over the last decade. There's a realization, as you have said, that there are a number of public health threats that are out there or threats that would be deliberate. The fact of the matter is they, at the end of the day, are all infectious diseases or are in some way associated with public health response. So we've had a number of things that have happened, uh, funding for the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases over the years to be able to provide for the basic science and discovery. And that leads to various early stage products potentially, or at least uh, understanding of the biology that goes behind uh, the medical products that we ultimately need. And over the course of the last four or five years, monies have been set aside, specifically uh, Project BioShield was designed to be a large amount of cash to be used to purchase medical countermeasures once major pharmaceutical companies develop them and we're ready for our procurement or to buy them to put them into the uh, strategic national stockpile. And then the development of BARDA here at HHS, and that was to serve the role of being the nation's advanced developer for some of these medical products. And the recent announcement augments all of these in the following way. Biodefense, or some of the diseases that we talk about, really are not what we would call economically or commercially viable products to be manufactured by these companies. So the larger pharmaceutical companies, which are really there to do what they do to make money for their stockholders and to provide the medicines, 
have generally found this area of uh, pandemic diseases or, well, not so much pandemic diseases, but the biological threats that you talked about, bioterrorism, less of a commercially viable place to be uh, investing their time and their energies and efforts. And in this stead, there is a group of entrepreneurial or smaller companies that have really identified that this is a particular niche that they could fill for the our own, for the federal government's needs, and possibly for other marketable opportunities. So what we did when the secretary released a statement to the American Medical Association saying that in the wake of the delayed ability to have the large bulk of vaccine available for the American population in response to the H1N1 epidemic last year and in response to another episode where we tried to purchase a particular approach for a new anthrax vaccine that failed because at the time the science was not mature enough for us to make a purchase under the BioShield regulations, the secretary made a call for an end-to-end review of our medical countermeasure enterprise. And by end-to-end, we could talk about that from the perspective of from the initial requirements or idea all the way up to the ability to put the medical countermeasure in somebody's arm or in somebody's mouth. But what the secretary was really focusing on, and so what we focused on, was that period of time from a concept of a particular product all the way through the licensure to the FDA, and then the ability to buy an approved product and put it into the stockpile. So we focused this major effort in that particular region, and there are five large-scale initiatives that account for the $1.9 billion that you referred to. Each of them address issues that we heard when we went out and queried our various stakeholder communities, the businesses that we deal with, the investment communities, the academic centers, the stakeholders who are at the public health end of things. So we did a very thorough sweep asking a range of people what would be desirable to have in addition to what we already have to enhance this entire medical countermeasure enterprise. And from that, we ultimately arrived at five big initiatives that cost money and a variety of other things that are more administrative or happen here at HHS in terms of how programs are managed. But I know there's been a lot of interest in the five big programs that cost the $1.9 billion that you talked about. Just for general purposes, for our listeners out there, if they don't understand, like, why would the private sector not do this, is that private companies can make $9 billion a year on cholesterol pills, where a bioterrorist threat only comes around every so often, thankfully. So it's like, okay, what's the economic incentive to get into? I just wanted to remind our listeners of that, because it's something that is not always so attractive. So when people talk about times to spend tax dollars, $2 billion for this, it's very important. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, your host, and joining me is Dr. George Korch. He's a senior medical officer with the Department of Health and Human Services, and he is the senior science advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services, and we're talking about this effort whereby the government is investing $2 billion in a makeover, if you will, and to speed the process of getting drugs and vaccines to people in the event of 
pandemic flus and bioterrorist attack. And doctor, if you could continue and tell us these five points you wanted to get across. Sure. The very first one has to do with the regulatory side of the house. And so as everybody knows, uh, all your health professionals out there, all drugs and all biologics and all devices to be used here in the United States must be approved by the Food and Drug Administration. That is certainly the case for the countermeasures that we would be hoping to procure for the American population. And the FDA has, over the course of the years, not received the amount of funding that it really probably could use or definitely could use to increase the science base, the knowledge base, in an area which we're calling regulatory research. So most people are familiar with bench-level research, where you're identifying the basic characteristics of a pathogen or, or looking at some basic biological principle, but less attractive, if you will, as far as the academic communities are concerned, but still very, very important with regard to product development, are these multiple other types of research programs or studies that will ultimately translate in our ability to take a product and move it faster through the regulatory pipeline. And these could be in the areas of uh, assay development or new design of clinical trials or in the case of the medical countermeasures that we're talking about here, reliance on something called the animal efficacy rule. So all of these are areas that are very ripe for our need to be able to translate or help remove the risk of some of these products as they go through the regulatory pipeline. So that's one part of it, more money to allow the scientists at FDA to be on an equal par, if you will, with some of the technologies, especially the newer technologies that these sponsors, these companies are bringing to the FDA. You certainly want to have be on the same footing with the companies that are bringing data to you and understand the data. And that means that you need to invest a bit in the ability to do the science there on site. So can you give us a little example of that? Because a lot of people would think that the science in a traditional drug development might be done by the drug company in an academic setting. So people will actually be doing the research at FDA. Well, they will be. One prime example of that is something that we will describe as another initiative. For instance, the potency assay for influenza vaccine. Uh, potency is an assay or a methodology to demonstrate that you've got suitable strength, if you will. Your vaccine or your drug is uh, potent enough to provide the hope-for outcome. And so with regard to a vaccine, we look at, well, how much of the, the vaccine components or the antigens that are presented to the immune system are really there. Now, the potency assay for influenza vaccine, year by year by year, we, we make a vaccine. And it's a very old technology and involves red blood cells and materials from uh, agricultural sources, if you will. And it's been a, a standard, long-standing way of doing business. And you don't need to change it if everybody's happy with it. And certainly the drug companies don't want to invest in a novel technology or a novel approach, because that would just mean that they would have to demonstrate to the FDA that this new potency assay is equivalent to the potency assays that FDA accepts as the norm. So you're eliminating hurdles right there. So right there we're saying, well, if we can get the ability to engage regulatory science to, in fact, use modern technologies, explore the modern technologies, and eliminate that barrier by saying, okay, industry, you don't have to invest in this. We are investing in this. That means that seven or eight different companies don't have to repeat or develop their own systems and take on risk that maybe the system will not work. 
This is a, a way that, you know, the old expression, a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, in this particular case, that sort of an assay being done by our regulatory agency or being assisted by our regulatory agency ultimately will translate into a faster way of determining potency. And that potency assay sometimes takes several weeks. So as we looked at the amount of time it took to get the H1N1 vaccine through the system last year, and believe me, it was done with almost neck-breaking record speed relative to how it normally happens year after year, there's a couple of weeks there that could be saved by doing a potency assay that was faster. Similarly, the sterility assays, the ways that we demonstrate that there are no other extra agents or other infectious materials or they're called adventitious agents, there's a whole technology that's pretty long-standing and fairly old around sterility assays, and uh, we're looking to be able to improve on that as well. So two prime examples that would cause us to save probably several weeks to maybe even up to a month with regard to being able to turn around the release of our vaccines for influenza virus vaccine. Well, and as we wrap up here, could you give our listeners an idea? I mean, would we be able to see something as soon as next year on that? I mean, if the vaccine, I don't think anybody will argue it was turned around in time for the flu season last year. Would we be able to see improvements maybe in this flu season? I don't know whether we would see them in this particular flu season. Of course, that's already upon us and the vaccines are already in the bottle and they're out for distribution out in the general public. We believe that over the course of the next year, uh, a number of these things will be funded and researched. And uh, I hope within the year or so to have the answer, which would mean it would be more likely that not even next season, but the season thereafter would be when you would start seeing the fruits of that particular enterprise. It takes a long time to be sure that the technology that you're trying to apply actually does work. And that's what the FDA really is very conservative and concerned about is to make sure that whatever you're replacing it with is at least as good and usually hopefully much better than what you already have. Well, I think the bottom line is, though, that I think what health professionals and consumers alike will agree is that a speedier, more efficient process to get drugs and vaccines to the market in the event of a pandemic flu or bioterrorist threat is what it's all about. Hopefully we'll have you back and maybe talk about this again. I'm Bruce Japson. I've been your host. And joining me today has been Dr. George Korch. He is with the Department of Health and Human Services. He's a senior medical officer, and we've been talking about the effort of the federal government to speed and improve the process by which you get drugs and vaccines in the event of a terrorist attack or a pandemic, which it seems like we have a new one every year. You've been listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And I'd like to thank you today for listening.